Hi, and welcome to Going Off Track. Welcome. Welcome. I felt like I get this weird affectation of my voice. I'm like, why do I do that? I talk normal the whole podcast, <laughs> always. And then when like you're like, do the intro, I'm like, hey, everyone. <laughs> you know, you want to get them excited. I want to get them excited, wanted yeah. to bring you up to your level of excitement. Yeah, and uh, admittedly, I don't get very outwardly excited. <laughs> this is about as amped up as I get. You have had a fair amount of uh, Stumptown. Too much. That's Too much. I had a whole canister of the frozen or the cold yeah (laughs) it tastes so good though i know it tastes delicious you're supposed to cut it i cut it with almond milk oh okay (laughs) and ice um today on the podcast jeremy devine um owner of temporary residence records and jeff rickley singer for united nations and thursday and solo artists and uh yeah, Jeremy is putting out the new United Nations record, which we talk about here, but more importantly, maybe we talk about Jeremy's whole kind of career, his experiences in Louisville, you know, getting into music, discovering Slint, starting Temper Residence, who's put out amazing albums, you know, by bands like Explosions in the Sky, Mono, Envy, it goes on and on. Uh, Jeremy is just a guy who's in it for the right reasons, and uh, I feel like Temper Residence is not just because I'm on the label, but I would say is one of the coolest labels around from sort of the packaging to the attention to detail to the kind of overall vision. So we thought we'd have Jeremy and Jeff come by and uh, sort of talk about how they got to where they are, their views on art, and um, yeah, just sort of tell their story. So it's a cool episode, and um, I hope you like it. Today I'm going off track. Our guests are Jeremy Devine from Temporary Residence and Jeff Rickley from United Nations. Hello. How are you guys doing? Hey there, good. Wait, can you hear when I drink water? No, I don't. Does it make a sound? Can anyone hear when you drink water? Thank you for asking Wait, can that, I though. can swear? Yes, you can swear. Can you swear while drinking water? That's the key. I want to talk to you about hardcore. Yeah. I want to talk to you about the 90s. I want to talk about Louisville. I want to talk about your label too, but I mean, how did you sort of get exposed to kind of like that scene, like in Kindle, Endpoint, and all that kind of stuff? I love that in Kindle's the first band you brought up. So like, when I think of Louisville, I think of like I think of like Falling no, Forward, <laughs> yeah, in Kindle, yeah, yeah. I think of Falling all those forward, bands because yeah. I got into like that initial stuff like later. Like I went to like the first Crazy Fest, and like yeah. I was really that was fun. I was there. Were you there? Really, yeah. the indoor one? Yeah. Isn't with, that- uh, <laughs> The guy from Inkindle was the host. Yeah. Mark, What's his name? Mark Bricky. Mark Bricky. Yeah, Mark Bricky. And uh, yeah, Grade played twice. They were right. my favorite band. They were Again, Slate, I have to point out to our listeners, uh, listeners, if you're not taking notes yet, start now and listen to all these bands. It's very important. It's happened the last time Jeff was on. <laughs> oh, we got <laughs> really weird last time. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, Grade played twice in the same festival? Yeah, because yeah, somebody canceled. Someone canceled and I had missed, I drove down from Cleveland and missed Grade and was like distraught and then like they just played the next day and I was like oh my god life I is good that. again yeah <laughs> it was awesome wow that's awesome Coalesce and Converge played that day they were both great yep and Coalesce what's funny about that is uh, well Crazy Fest was past my time because I left Louisville in 95 and okay. I think maybe I don't. maybe there's an age gap but it's not that big it's not that big I mean this must have been when was that 97 well, how old are you now yeah 97. I'm 34 okay so there's a three year age gap it's not that big but it's one yeah, of those same. things where it it gets smaller as you get older yeah right but if you go backwards and you think when I was 18 you were 15 right when I was 17 you were 14 like those kinds of things make a difference because when I was 18 I left Louisville right therefore 
Like, if I went back three years and thought of everything that I did from 15 to 18 is all the stuff that you would then do. When you were gone. After I was gone. (laughs) Crazy Fest happened. Initial Records didn't even move to Louisville until after I was gone. Really? They were a Detroit label. I didn't know that. I didn't know that either. Yeah, they were. So they were specifically West Bloomfield Hills, Michigan, which is the richest suburb. I think at the time it was the richest suburb in America. Uh, And it's where um, uh, Bob Seger lives. And I think the... I think the riches lived in that neighborhood or next to Bob Seger, some, you know, in, in that area. And, uh, Andy, Andy, right. Andy started that label, I think when he was in college or right when he got back from, you know, I, I don't know a ton about that guy's life, but I, cause I always knew him peripherally as the guy who sort of weirdly invaded Louisville. And I don't mean that in, in derogatory. I mean, it's just like, wow, this, this guy yeah. outside of Louisville, took a weird interest in louisville specifically and like yeah it was the louisville scene label definitely essentially yeah. like became like even though they put out loads of stuff like did they put out like jejun and stuff like Anakin that and dagger and stuff like yeah that, they put out yeah. loads of other stuff but it all weirdly in the same way that chicago felt like it was the or touch and go felt like it was the chicago label mm-hmm. like initial felt had that feel to it where it's like oh this is like the louisville label that's not actually from louisville mm-hmm. and they didn't move to Louisville until I think ninety five, like right when I was gone. And Crazy Fest didn't happen until after they had moved to Louisville. Sure, yeah. So I missed, I missed that whole era. I'd never been to one of those festivals. But what's funny about Coalesce is I started a band when I lived in Baltimore with the drummer from Coalesce, who, which was Sauna. The drummer from mm. from Sauna was the drummer from Coalesce. You'd never guess. I know, and that, and and I, he obviously was in this band who played there. There was a weird opportunity for us to have encountered each other, like kind of in a different time of our lives that just never, like we basically just missed each other in this one instance. And then weirdly came, it's similar to what we were talking about earlier about like weird loops, you know, like weird life loops where it's like, it comes back around and you're just like, this is weird to think about the instances where we might've even been in the same room. Yeah. Even you and I being at crazy fest is like a weird thing. Yeah. That is crazy. We're in a band together. We never talked about like, we were both at this festival seeing like all these amazing bands. I just had a flashback too to their catalogs. They were like the first company that had catalogs of like cute, like girls with short hair, like wearing like the t-shirts. Yeah. And I still like love getting them. Of course. For the pixie cut. Yeah. Yeah. Like I didn't. Yeah. Like hold on. Let me dim the lights. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's funny because I think all that stuff. Do any of them have glasses? (laughs) Was that or like the Victor catalog that was like, we're gonna kill you or whatever yeah i what's funny is i think all of that stuff and i'm not totally i'm not the best person like i'm not the the foremost authority on that stuff because some of it was past my time and some of it was from older people in that scene that i looked up to but i was definitely not i couldn't call myself a peer it's more like again the age gap in retrospect not that big but it's right. big enough at the time to be like, I'm a 15-year-old kid and this 18-year-old kid is in this touring band and on this label and all that stuff. And it seems... Everything you can never imagine doing for yourself. Everything. Yeah. You know, it's like they put out records. Yeah. Like all these things where you're just like, this is, I can't even fathom what yeah. they're doing. And it's so, it's quaint now when you look back on it and think like, well, this is the kind of stuff that, I, you know, we can, we do all day long, like all the time, you know, right. and everybody, it's like, We've all done that. Hold on, everybody. Screensaver just kicked on. The last time I did it, we crashed. 
Oh. Oh. Sure? It said wow. power saving mode. The last time we did that, we crashed. Yeah, I shouldn't do that, but <coughs> definitely okay. You say. It looks like we're okay. <coughs> I talked to this uh, comic book cart, uh, artist from Chicago who was like moving to Chicago the next day and she came in. And uh, that happened. To do is come back in and I was like, um. Nothing. I nothing here. Only recorded sure. seven minutes of the whole podcast. You were definitely right. What's her name, that comic artist? Uh, Lucy Nicely. Lucy Nicely. It's a good name. She wrote a number of books, and most recent is this amazing uh, comic book memoir cookbook. Cool. So she'll tell stories, and then she'll have details. It makes me feel like I can cook, because when there's drawings, I understand. Right. But anyway, sorry for that. I love it. (laughs) What were you saying, Jeremy? Sorry about that. No, no, no. It's all good. Um, We're going to edit this out anyway. I was going to say, I'm trying to figure out a way where I was enough so that you can edit it. It's not that crazy. But... uh, so yeah, the age gap wasn't that big, but it felt really big to me. And to answer that, what you were talking about, how I got into punk rock was uh, the first concert I ever went to, first concert I ever tried to go to was the Injustice for All tour yeah. uh, from Metallica. In 19, I think it was 88 that they came, 88 or 89, they came to Louisville. And... Uh, my grand, I was raised by my grandmother. My grandmother was totally fine with me going; didn't really care. But my mom, at the time, was a big Cliff Burton fan. Was yeah, was a was much bigger Cliff fan, and she <laughs> was like, "No way, that band's dead to me." And um, it wasn't she, their fault. <laughs> she um, yeah, but they're a victim of circumstance. Mm-hmm. Baby with the bathwater. Yeah, uh, and so she. Uh, I I don't remember the whole situation at the time, but I remember being like. Young enough to where I certainly had no authority. And <laughs> right. it was established. I was not allowed to go see this satanic death metal band or whatever, you know, as far as anyone else was concerned. I saw that tour. It was really good. Sorry. I'm, yeah, <laughs> thanks, man. Um, <laughs> satanic death metal. Yeah, exactly. That's all right. My girlfriend's parents think that of what I do. No, I know. That's amazing. the thing. It's like any heavy music at all is just satanic death metal. <laughs> Stupid so, someone recently told me that there's a version of Injustice for All now with the bass turned up that's called Injustice for Jason. <laughs> oh my God. God. I, I don't know if that. I Isn't that? fully believe that. I think that's that. our last good record. Someone, I, I guess, added yeah. bass to it's it. It's actually my favorite it, Metallica record. I'm right there with you. But, uh, Isn't that such a good title? <laughs> Injustice for Jason. <laughs> I think they're reissuing it, right, as Injustice for Jason. This is a whole other podcast, but Metallica, by the way, have... Have the best business management of any band I've maybe since Led Zeppelin. They're like, like in yes. terms of yeah, yeah, in terms of what they have accomplished from a music industry standpoint is terrifying. <laughs> I mean, in a great way. Like the whole fact that their entire catalog is now reverting back to them completely. It's, it's all in blackened. It's all, nuts. They're oh, really. Entire, I didn't know that. All their of entire it. catalog. So crazy. So when the Black <laughs> album hit really big, you right? Know, it became like commercially. It, I think it. From a label standpoint, it must have become really obvious at that point, like, this is weird. Like, this is unusual for a band five albums in to have escalated every album. And now their fifth album is their biggest, where we thought that they'd never be bigger than their fourth, where we thought they'd never be bigger than their third. And it kept escalating, and I think they had one album left or two albums left in that contract, and so they renegotiated for a contract extension, and... This was like nobody knew that. Nobody knew. There was never talk about this when it happened. 
like any details or that there even was a contract extension. It came out last year that the terms of the contract extension in 1991 was that they would extend to like whatever it was, 14 albums or, you know, how many albums it was. And at the end of it, when they delivered their last record, their entire recorded catalog would revert to the band. Insane. Uh, and they delivered their last record. That Death Magnetic was their final record in their contract. And the entire catalog, all the way back to Kill 'Em All, now reverts 100% to the band. Oh, they're just like going on nostalgia tours now forever. Forever. Yeah, and, and so now they, now they have a label... Which also explains why they never reissued or remastered any of those records oh because they've held on to that as like, a, like, we will hold off on doing this until we own everything. But it makes sense now. Right. But there was never, like, there was all these people all along being like, why do they never remaster those records? Why, like, everybody repackages and remasters everything. Like, records that are nowhere near as seminal as those records get that treatment. Why do they never get it? And then it turned out like, oh, this is all... Super smart, super super canny business. Did you was and, that the, was that ninety one contract the same? I heard this that Metallica had put it in that contract new negotiation that they got paid to record. Oh, I love that. I have no idea that they yeah, that when they great. would go into the studio they would get paid. It was a salary. Oh, like yes, a salary. That's not yeah. a, that's not unheard of. Okay. Um, even Thursday in the height of our major label craziness, we got a uh, salary when we were recording and. Also, living stipend and um, yeah, they were like per diems essentially. Right. Right? Yeah, they were wild per diems, and then we would have like, you know, here's ten thousand dollars for new equipment. Nobody needed a new equipment. We had been touring for five years. You know what I mean? Yeah, but yeah. ultimately, all that stuff came back. I mean, oh yeah. Except you're not on the hook except for that it. we yeah. After the second record, we asked to be let off with two million dollars unrecouped, which is essentially saying like this is a loan that will never get paid back. Yeah. Cool. <laughs> that you don't have to file for bankruptcy for. <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> It's like a free default. <laughs> yeah, it's great. Like a default with no credit problems whatsoever. <laughs> it's got to be such the antithesis of art. And I go, going into a label as a way to, you know, I guess almost be the intermediary for artists is that you want to be in a band, you want to write music, and all of a sudden, oh, I have to deal with this shit. It's like when you're an adult and you go, wait, I, my dad's not doing my income tax anymore. What the fuck is this? And it's right. really frustrating and it's a lot of, oh, it's really confusing. I'm fascinated by how mm. it all works from a standpoint of, licensing and where does the song go and you know oh, wait, what do you mean you don't have your masters like that blows my mind and it's all these right. things that are just set up like yeah that. and um, yeah and being friends with people like jeff is fascinating to me because it's a window into a world that i always that i always worked against i sort of i worked like the the, the label was started inspired by stuff like discord and touch and go yeah these artist friendly deals that were 50-50 net royalty splits, and everything was really just like we're behaving like friends who happen to have a business venture of some sort. And the business is kind of secondary to the fact that we've made this cool thing together that we love. Like, it's an excuse to yeah. keep working together. And, like, I'm really bad with keeping in touch with friends, but I'm really great with, with keeping on top of business stuff. And so it's a great excuse for me to keep in touch with people that I might not otherwise keep in touch with and i know this because i see all these people that i was close to at some point that i don't have any any real like working relationship with but all i do is work and so all of those relationships kind of just fell by the wayside you know and and not not in like a tragic way i mean it's just like oh i realize i haven't talked to that person in 10 years and they're totally cool but i realize it's because i've had no 
working relationship with that person. And so, but do you it, consider it work though? No, well, some of it. Some I don't. Of it yeah, certain, I mean, I've sure. gone and helped out, and certainly some of it's work. Yeah, I mean, I, I guess I do. I mean, I don't necessarily subscribe to the idea of like it never feels like work because I love what I do. I do love what I do, but it to- yeah, it totally feels like work. It's not always like. I mean, I love my girlfriend. And I love being in a relationship and I love the stability of that relationship and I I want it to grow. Like I love the idea of having kids and getting married, but that relationship is work. Like there's work to it to keep, you know, sure. it's like you always have work, like working with people. How big is my choir that you're preaching to right here on this? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, dude. It's, you know, and it's, it's like, and, it, yeah. but, and that's not, that's not a bad thing. No. That's, and that's I love the, that. That's the important thing that most people don't realize. That's the right. important thing that a lot of people don't realize is like, you you can't demonize work. Yeah, the, the most important part of dream job is job. Yeah, I mean, it, it, because the longer that you, I mean, if you acknowledge the jobness of it, then it gets to be a dream for longer. You know, and right. like, and I, it's that way for me. Like, I years ago I stopped thinking of the idea because it's, it's easy to romanticize that adage of like. It's not real. It never feels, not a day goes by where it feels like work because it's my dream job. And it's like, well, that's not true. I mean, if I said that, then I'd start to feel like maybe it wasn't a dream job anymore once it felt like work. And I think that's unfair. And that would set me on like a weird track to be like, oh, well, I always was told that this is supposed to never feel like work. And now it does. <laughs> so I guess it's not actually cool anymore. <laughs> yeah, like, no, that's the punk mentality right there. <laughs> yeah, but it's, it is. It's a lot of work. And it's a lot of work to do it right. And again, this is a thing where like, friends like jeff come in handy in that sense because he's had relationships with other labels and other experiences where where i hear it and i'm like okay like this this sort of vindicates what we do and how hard it is to do what we do because it's hard to do things right and do right by people Mm -hmm. it's not easy like it's it's much easier to screw everybody over Mm -hmm. because you can do that without you can you can basically like i put out this record and then i just didn't look back you know, and I never thought about it. And the money keeps coming in. And I've seen good people, like people that I genuinely love, burn those kinds of bridges over and over again. Like actually sincerely good people who run labels and just shouldn't have run labels. And it's like, this would have been great if you had only done your own band because it's really your own thing. Right. But once you put other, you put other people's creations in your hands right. and you essentially put your fate like their fate in your hands and you weren't capable of it and you weren't responsible for it. And then it just right. sort of flames out in this really bad way. And like I have seen, obviously there's like, you and I, Jeff and I have talked about this before about labels that are like companies in general that are maybe actually evil minded. You yeah. know, they're, yeah. they're masterminded to take advantage and exploit other people. And then there are labels who are just irresponsible. They're not bad people. Like they're really not bad people. I, kn- right. I, I know... There's nobody in this room who's collected punk records for longer than five years that isn't aware of labels who are run by nice kids who had great taste in music yep. and who just had no right being in charge of someone else's future. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But that's, that's so funny. It's like my wife has told me this story that I'm going to appropriate as my own. She used to book bands and yeah. she you know, would take a band to like shows like Jeff would put on back in the day. Mm-hmm. Now, some kid who had the best of intentions, but at the end of the day didn't have the money. And she was like, well, guess what? We're going to walk to the ATM yeah, yeah, and yeah. we're going to figure it out, totally. you know? And it's, it's like exactly that best of intentions because you want to put on a good show, but yeah. you need a little more than that. And you yeah. know, it's, it's funny too that you say that. Cause like that, I think the reason that we continued for 
300 plus shows was that I would have a backup fund if nobody came to the show. Because it's like, well, if I didn't get the word out there, it's not your fault. You came here from friggin' Tennessee to play a show. Yeah. And like pasta and a Florida crash that isn't really <laughs> worth it. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, so that was like the one thing that actually some of my friends thought was totally not punk that like I had I had a bunch of like little jobs on the side. I even wrote for like penthouse letters and stuff on the oh, side. I remember. Yeah, that's right. You remember that one. <laughs> and uh and I would keep like, you know, hundred fifty dollars. If no one came, at least I would have some money to give the band, you know. And I think it's true. If you're not ready to look out for people on a certain level, then don't go there. You know, yeah. like you're And I wasn't ready knew. for the longest time. I totally fell into that cycle early on. And I think seeing it and being like having such a severe, my conscience wouldn't allow me to continue doing it the way that I mean, basically I had been doing similar to what we're talking about, where it's like I put out records and I had the idea at the time because I started the label in 95. I'm trying really hard to get back to your question, Don't worry. your original question. <laughs> you, but, trust um, me. But I, I don't uh, remember it. So, it's so I, started, I started the label. <laughs> Jonah moved on. Yeah. Uh, that was like 20 minutes ago, bro. In 95, and probably the first like seven or eight years, I didn't keep really any accounting to speak of. I mean, it was like, it was exactly what I'm criticizing now that I'm only able to criticize because I fully went through it. Like I saw it. Yeah. And it also made me. Like, I'm able to criticize it. I'm also able to empathize with people who are in that situation because I knew, like, heart of hearts, that I meant no wrong. Like, I really, I basically just had eyes bigger than my mouth kind of situation where it's like, I want to do this and I want to do this. And and I was obsessed with the idea of building it to where somebody else besides me cared about it. And, like, that was my goal. It's like, I want to make somebody care. You know, and I want to be able to sell enough records to do another record and then to do another record. And that was it. That was like as long term as it was. Right. And then once once it got to the point where it's like, oh, it's enough money that I could do two records at once was when I started to realize like the only reason that that is true is because I owe people from three records ago or four records ago for what we've sold. Right. And it was a mess. It was a total mess. And it's like one of those things where I knew I knew better going into it enough to have kept the receipts for everything all along the way and kept records of everything. I just didn't account for any of it. So it's basically like I'd have piles of everything that shows proof that these transactions happened with no organization whatsoever. I didn't own a computer. I had no cell phone. Like this was, it was all just run out of a bedroom on as meager means as possible. And then I had just, it caught up to me at some point where I was like, I have this great opportunity to put out this record that I, I could only dream of doing. But the reality of it is the only way I can pay for that is because I have not paid somebody else. So you were a bank. Yeah. And so, so we, I, there's a point where I basically stalled as much as I, but my fear at the time was like, if I stop long enough to accrue the money to pay the people that I owe, then we will have killed the momentum of the label. And then I'm, then what, you know? And so I was, couldn't figure out, and it's probably unrealistic to think that way. But in my head at the time, it was like, no, this really is like, if I don't keep this going really active, everybody's going to forget about it instantly. That's what I would think too, honestly, just because of how short attention spans are in the music world. Yeah. And I got really nervous and I was like, felt trapped in a corner. And there were like, 
there were things, you know, like I owed Cerber Scholl money, but ultimately I owed Cerber Scholl money because I agreed to a deal that was so dumb. Like, it was a bad deal on my part. Like, it was a bad, it was me, it was just an absurd deal. It's basically giving them, like, it was, like, giving them way, way, way more than anybody could sustain. You know, right. like, no label could sustain what I was offering them, but it's because I loved them so much. Like, I love their music so much. And that was the big turnaround for me was that first experience of, like, something I love so much that I have spoiled. You know, like, I've right. essentially screwed this up because, like, the first really shining example of, like, great intentions that just blew it. You know, it's like, well, I only did this. I only gave you, like, all this free product and essentially 70% of the royalties and all of these, like, various things. Where I'm like, you know, this is, I mean, this will bankrupt. I have no way to actually make this work. Like, I can't actually make this work. Like, there's no way for me to pay you what you're owed and ever have me be in the black at all. Like, I can't even make zero and be able to pay you what you're owed according to the deal. But the I also realized... You do, the more in, in debt you'd be, yeah. right? Yeah. <laughs> and I also realized, like, that's not their fault. Like, I can be mad about it all I want, but it's a deal that I agreed to because I wanted to do this thing. And it was basically, like, tons of life lessons and these few encounters at that time. How old were you at that time? Maybe 23... Yeah. God. Yeah. Roughly. I mean, I started, I started the label at 18. Mm-hmm. So maybe it was like five or six years into it. Just enough to think you knew what you were doing, right? Five, yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Especially at 23 where you think you can do anything. So It was five years into it. It was 2000, I think. 2002. Yeah, 2000 was when this, so five years into it. So I was 23. Wow. 22, 23. And I was just like, I just have to, I have to fix this. You know, like, and I have to sort of start over, not start over as far as the perception on the outside is, but internally I have to, I can't, this can't go any further because if we ever have an artist who's any bigger than this, then this turns into a giant disaster really quickly. Was it all you? Is there no one else? Yeah, it was all me until, uh, until Oh four. So like. Yeah, the first nine years. No business person at all. So this is all no, hacking no, no. and you learned yeah, on yeah. your own. What's that? So this is just all stuff you had to learn on your own to keep it going. Yeah, yeah. And, and it's, it's really admirable, but it's also scary. It's weird though, because I think the only I think doing it that young made it less scary. Right. Because right, right. it I was too it's like when you it's like if you start skating when you're ten. Yeah. And you become amazing right. by the time you're sixteen or seventeen, you never have a chance to be aware of your own mortality. Right. And think like, wait, normal people don't jump downstairs. Right. Normal people don't fall 60 times in one day. Normal people don't come home with like ankle sprains on a really regular basis. These are things that normal people encounter once in their life and then talk about it forever. You know, like, oh, there's that time I slipped on the ice and my knees swelled up like a baseball and, and then I couldn't walk for a week. And it's like, but skateboarders have that happen Every week, 70 yeah. times a year, you know, where they're like, oh, remember that weird thing that like grew out of my ankle because it, it's like all these things that are super unnatural, but you're in it and you start at a young enough age to make it become norm where you're never aware of your own mortality until you quit. Yeah. And this was the thing with the label where it's like I was never aware of how scary it really was or 
which was the good side of it because it allowed me to keep going and it allowed me to have faith in something that nobody else had faith in. Right. And nobody around me had faith in it. Like really sincere. And that's not, I don't mean to like, I'm not trying to play up the drama of that, but right. it is like the closest friends I had, bandmates, all of them were like, when are you actually going to get a job? Like a real job? Like when, like, what do you do for a living? And it's like this, this is what I do. And they're like, well, this isn't really work. I mean, this is not really a job. You're not really... Like, this isn't going to work, you know? And everybody around me, people I really trusted and believed in, really thought that. And it wasn't because they were bad people. It's because they had a perspective on it that I did not have. Like, they could look at it from the outside and be like... But they sound like they had similar backgrounds. So if you're basing this on a model of touch and go and discord that we all know... Yeah, but and I mean, like, work. in retrospect, how rare is that, though? Yeah, I think that's uh, that the is. Thing. There's only two. <laughs> I think you're. Un- I think when you're in it, you're unaware of how how unlikely it really is to succeed. Yeah, because at the time it was like, yeah, I can do this, you know. But it is when you look back on it now, like you were saying, the touch and go Discord thing. You're like, there are not a lot that <laughs> right. had that model because that model is also like it's super artist mm-hmm. friendly, and I would never do it differently. But it's much harder to sustain. Because when you're splitting everything, but you're taking all of the financial risk, the risk, yeah, it's really hard to sustain. I mean, it's the it's the only way I could ever imagine doing it. But it is, it is a thing where, like, you know, if you're like, I'm on the hook if this fails, right? You lose and, if it loses, but everybody wins if it wins. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. Yeah, it's like, well, if this tanks, I have to figure out a way to keep the lights on and keep the staff paid and like all that stuff. The band. You know, it's it it hurts their morale and it hurts the whatever they put into it, which is no small feat. You know, I mean, the bands that we have, like they have rehearsal spaces, they have rent, they have all these things as well. But it is that thing where it's like, if I've invested enormous amounts of money in something, a hundred or two hundred or three hundred thousand dollars in something, and it fails, I'm I'm just on the hook for it. You know, I just have to figure out a way. It's not like I then come to the band and be like, well didn't work and we all agreed to spend all this money except i'm the one who spent it so now you guys have to pay your half like that does i I don't get to do that you know like that doesn't work and so i realize how difficult it is to do but i think if i had it's like when people write and they ask hey i really love you know this record or that record or what you guys do it's like i love the thursday envy split and i love the way it looks and i love the way it sounds and like i love how you guys have everything set up how, like, I want to start a label like that. Like, what should I do? And it's like, A, I don't really know, because starting a label now versus starting a label, like, pre-internet is a completely yeah. different planet. The other thing is, it really depends on how old you are in a weird way. It's like, I started this when I didn't know better. Mm-hmm. And I started this, like, before I would realistically hear out people who were like, I started, I did this, and I went broke. You know, and this Mm -hmm. ruined my life. Or like, you know, the people that I would talk to, looping back to Jonah's question, the first actual concert I went to was Ozzy Osbourne, Sepultura, and Alice in Chains, which I thought was awesome. It was 1990. It was the No More Tours tour. Or 1991. I don't remember. But it was sometime around there. And I did that thing that kids do where I instantly escalated to something a hundred times more underground and cool with the very next show that I went. It's like I went to that show at like an arena, Louisville mm-hmm. Gardens. And then the second show I went to was Endpoint, 
Son of Dog, which is another <laughs> Louisville band. Uh, maybe in Kendall, or maybe whatever in Kendall was called before they were called in Kendall. All right. Uh, they were called something before that. But yeah, they were called before, something before, before the in Kendalls. Yes. They were called something before in Kendall. <laughs> okay. Uh, and I think maybe they played that show, but I could be making that up. It was the Catharsis record release show. Oh, man. They were so fun. Um, <laughs> so uh, it was in an Elks Lodge in Louisville, Kentucky that they had rented out for the night. And I got there because I had no idea how punk shows are. And I, I was, you know, I knew nothing about it. And I showed up in a tie-dyed Nirvana T-shirt that I made at home. Yes. Uh, and ripped bugle boy jeans, <laughs> like bugle boy jeans with like ripped holes in the knees. And this is what Jeremy's wearing right now. Just in yeah. case <laughs> and um, I haven't heard the term bugle boy in so long <laughs> that I'm still kind of reeling from that. <laughs> it was, yeah, it was. Um, they were a, a punk clothing company in the oh, early oh, 90s. Oh, I had them. <laughs> yeah. Um, bugle boy. I was trying to remember where they went. They were the pants that I wore when I was husky, which is which is another term for fat. <laughs> oh, I was husky. I wore uh, the yeah. husky jeans. I was a husky, husky kid, and therefore I wore, I wore husky, husky tough, jeans. I wore husky tough skins. I don't know what that is. <laughs> Tuskins were the like the little kid or like the elementary school brand of jeans for fat kids. Uh, no, or I just for, for everybody. But I don't know. Tuskins. The Midwest they're called Tuskins. Tuskin sounds like a condom. Yeah. yeah. Um, and they, I mean, as was it T U F F? No. Oh, that's a blown opportunity right yeah. there. Um, I was a husky kid. S K I N Z would be the way I would go with that. I was um, on the Huskies marching band, and let me tell you. <laughs> oh, that's when different. You, it says Huskies, and you're Husky, and you're holding a saxophone marching in the cold for a football game. See, that's, no, that's a cool look. <laughs> that's a super cool look. I had an ascot. Uh, <laughs> now, that is a super cool look. Yeah, it and is. you can pull that off. <laughs> yeah. If you can. But I, yeah, so I, so I showed up, and I was wearing the 91 Air Jordans, which Sick. just got reissued last year that I desperately <laughs> tried to get. And found out they're like four hundred and fifty dollars. Yeah, crazy expensive. Um, but uh, that's what I showed up to this show. I don't know any better. Also, I showed up at four o'clock in the afternoon, <laughs> and to an Elks Lodge. So it's already. A, and these are all things that I don't know. I don't know any of this insider information. So right. I show up at four o'clock in the afternoon. I am the only person <laughs> there in the middle of a parking lot for an Elks Lodge. Which doesn't make any sense. Like in retrospect, it looks like I it's straight up like it's set up for an abduction. Like, but I'm just trying to <laughs> like I'm trying to entrap somebody. Uh, so I show up. I wait for like an hour, and then people start rolling in, and they're not people coming to the show. There are people. They're in the. It turns out way later that I would find out that it's like Duncan Barlow and and Chad Cassiter and like the the Endpoint crew. They were all coming to build the stage for the show at Elks Lodge. Right. Which they would then tear down and throw away after yeah. the show. Which ended up being like hugely influential on me because I would see that and I was like, man, this it broke down a massive barrier really quickly for yeah. me. Which is like, you don't need anybody to do a show. Like you can do a show on your own. Like concerts, you don't have to have concert people. You know, like you can like as a kid, I'm just like, wait, there's no, there aren't any like weird, it, it broke down like so many music industry myths so quickly, you know, cause I'm just like, oh man, there aren't like weird slimy people with like comb overs and, and all that <laughs> here trying to get like 
put hands in people's pockets. These are just kids, you know, that look cooler than me because none of them are wearing Bugle Boys and a tie-dye Nirvana t-shirt. But they're kids. They're like people maybe a few years older than me who just have the vibe like they've got their shit together. You know, they're just like, all right, we're here. We're, we know what we're doing. Right. Whether they did or not. So they come in at like 5 o'clock. They assemble the stage. By 7 o'clock or so, you know, it was an all-ages show, so it would start earlier. And I think there were four bands. By 7 o'clock or so, people really started to file around to go to the show. And that night was so many firsts because it was like my first punk show. It was the first time I had saw somebody build a show from nothing. And it was the first time I staged Joe. It's the first time that I was in a mosh pit. Uh, it was like first time I had been within like spitting distance of a live band. You know, like all these things that ended up having, it was the first time I bought merch at a show. Like all of these things that you do, like that are part of it, all happened in one shot. And in that same way that like when you're a teenager and you're just like, I'm going to absorb everything at lightning speed, you know, and like I'm going to become this culture faster than anyone can even imagine. That's the kind of thing that freaks parents out because you can't keep up with it. You know, like when you're outside of it, yep. you're just like, wait, like it three, seems like indoctrination. Yeah, right? it's like three months ago. Yeah, you were really into Simon and Garfunkel and like Michael Jackson, and now you just listen to like crazy straight edge hardcore. <laughs> like I don't understand. You know, it's that thing where the timetable doesn't make any sense. But when you're a kid, time slows down yeah. so much, and you're just like it seems like two days gone by is 48 hours of missed opportunities to have completely changed your identity and to have completely absorbed like whole new parts of this culture that you want to be an expert at. And I was totally that. I was like, I want to be an expert at this. Like I want to be, I want this to be my life. It's and also like, inherent, I think. Yeah. There's that, that oft quoted uh, George Harrison line, which is the first time he heard sitar, he said, this sounds familiar. Yeah. You know? Yeah, it is. I mean, it is it, totally when you find your identity. Yeah. It changes everything. When you're like, oh, this. Yeah, I, w- I went from Van Halen to Minor Threat in about a day. Yeah. yeah. It's <laughs> when it happens and you realize it vindicates it 20 years later, mm-hmm. 25 years later, you go back and you're like, well, that was real. You know, I mean, right. That was, here I am. <laughs> it's, yeah. I mean, it, you know, that was like clearly, it's not like I retreated back to poison. And, you know, and like, and Twisted Sister and all that. It's not like, I was like, oh, I dabbled in. Because you see that. You see, like, I, 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 you know, I know people that I went to high school with, like grade school and high school with that I'll go back to Kentucky now. And it's like, oh, they were super into hardcore, like in high school, but they're very into Nickelback now. You know, or they're very, it's like, they found. Sounds blasphemous to me. They found <laughs> their identity and their identity was not punk rock. Right. You know, and like. That's the vindication to it for me is where it feels like I can't imagine anything else, you know, besides like how, besides that culture, like it was, it made me who I am. And so going back to it, I traveled all those bands really just to be a part of it. Like I just wanted to be a part of it. It's like I went to high school with Ben from Falling Forward. So he and I were sincerely good friends. I was a year older than him and we were sincerely close friends. And Falling Forward were the baby band of that era, you know, because they came up like they were basically second generation of, of that 
that scene because they came up listening to Endpoint and Guilt and those kinds of things, but they were younger. But they really took a hold on that city really quickly. I mean, they were uh, partially because they had a singer who had a, quite a voice, you know? And so, like, right. yeah, definitely. They had this, like, post hardcore crossover at the time when that was really starting to take off when like Sunday real estate and even quicksand who were like a heavier version, but you know, this stuff that was like, Oh, it's really melodic heavy music, you know? And, um, it's funny because in such a short period of time, it felt like they were the biggest band in Louisville, you know, where it's like, Oh, these kids, these kids are all in high school, you know? And like, yeah. And they're just, their shows are absurd. You know, yeah. there, there's like a 1, thousand, fifteen hundred people, these shows, like just obscene. And then we would go, we would travel and I just wanted to be a part of that world. And I got super mocked, like when I was a kid, like when I was a teenager, like in Louisville, there's very few people who were actually good to me. You know, there just weren't. I mean, that's a totally truth. Like I was not cool. I was not in that circle. Most of those people were not necessarily devoted to, but like really spent a fair amount of time like mocking me and trying to like keep me out of that world or not, at least not at letting me be a part of it. And yet they wanted to be so inclusive of everyone. Yeah, but I, that's, it wasn't true. No, no, yeah. no. I mean, never that is. was all an aesthetic. It never is. Yeah. And um, it's like, who are you? Why do you want to be here? Well, because I like the music. Why? Well, shut the fuck up. Yeah. And it was, it was, skate culture shit. was like that too. Yep, you know, I was, shit. I was like super ostracized and all that stuff. <clears throat> and that's why I didn't start the label in Louisville. And I waited until I went to Baltimore because I knew that people would just make fun of me. You know, like that it's just like I was in this like weird insular punk world that I wanted to be a part of that, that just thought that I was like, not cool enough, you know, but I was too nerdy. So weird because I always thought of you as like king of the scene or something. So I was like, it's Jeremy from Temperez. Like everyone loves this guy, puts out just awesome records. He's from Louisville. He's like, not in the slightest. (laughs) I mean, like the only people, like I can count the number of people who were truly good to me and seemed to not be concerned about like the clickness of it on one hand. Like Duncan Barlow was amazing to me. Really, really amazing. And I'm super grateful for it. And I have a really, a soft spot for that guy, you know, for, for everything. Yeah. Because I owe him a lot. Like I owe him a lot in terms of like, he was super inclusive at a time when being super inclusive was not cool. And I super appreciated that. You know, I mean, this was like, I don't know how the scenes that you guys grew up in were, but like early 90s Louisville was really divisive and it was really like pretty dead set on not picking and choosing very wisely according to, you know, the powers that be, who's on one side and who's on the other. And I was never really on that side. And Duncan really like in his own way lobbied hard for that because he, whatever it was, like he either thought that like, he liked my art or he liked that, he, whatever. And I can't say, like, you'd have to ask him. But whatever it was, to me, he was like six or seven years older than me. So it took somebody like that with a lot of influence who would say, like, I like this kid. And, like, I like hanging out with him. And I don't understand why he's not cool according to so on and so forth. And the Falling Forward guys were always unbelievably sweet to me. And, so, and never saw that. And I think part of it for them is it didn't, 
it was kind of the elders like talking down that made no sense to them because they were younger than me. Like falling forward guys were younger than me. So I think they looked at it as like, well, right. this is just like a cool kid to hang out with. Like, yeah. And they were all from like the South end and which is like the really redneck part of Louisville. And so they came from a very working class, like poor, you know, like quote unquote white trash side of the tracks. And I think for them to be accepted by that world was, they looked at it in kind you know, mm-hmm. with like, oh, well, there's, they really truly were super inclusive. Yeah. <laughs> but there was this whole other scene like that surrounded the endpoint crew that weren't. And it wasn't endpoint themselves. Right. But it was everybody around them that mm-hmm. really like, that you look back on now as an adult and they're like, wow, these are a bunch of weird hanger ons that right. were obsessed with their position that were like, in order for us to hold this position, we have to be able to keep other people out of it. Right. And the band themselves, never participated in that stuff like rob and duncan and chad and like all that crew were always super cool you know the bands themselves were super cool but all the people that were in their periphery were terrible you know like they were really mean to kids you know and 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 it's just a thing yeah it's sort of a tradition i think no matter i i remember that you know what i mean like the only way that i ever got into punk rock was by being the last place that you could get a show in new brunswick it was like yeah okay well i guess this kid that we won't let play at the melody bar or book a a show anywhere or do this anywhere or like anything like the smallest place like no you can't like now he's doing more shows and he's offering all of us who have been associated to him shows at his house with these bands that we love and then eventually it's like i guess we have to well so people like duncan uh and when i was skating sean fallbush was this guy that owned the skate shop that uh, home skate shop in Louisville, which at the time, and I don't know if it's still like this because I'm, I'm not as up on skateboarding anymore, but I don't, at the time, skateboarding and punk rock were intrinsically meshed together. And most of the people that you saw at the skate shop, you also would later see at shows. And so, and everybody kind of hung out a lot. And so people like Duncan and Sean and, and you know, would be kind of the only reason that I would keep skateboarding and not go fully into something else because the lion's share of the people like that were around the shop were not really particularly super cool to me. And same thing with the music. Like Duncan was kind of the music side of that. Sean would be sort of the skateboarding side of that. And then uh, when I went to college, so I had this idea to start temporary residence in high school based off of this local label in Louisville called Slam Deck uh, that Scott from Metro Shifter, uh, maybe we talked about this earlier, but Scott from Metro Shifter ran. And uh, I really liked what they did because it was sort of discord for Louisville where they totally focused only on Louisville music. Uh, But they also sort of did some, like in retrospect, some weird commercial things that kind of shot themselves in the foot, like releasing mostly tapes you know, or not doing a lot of vinyl. I think all that stuff was probably born out of just not having a lot of money. But looking back on it, it kind of, I think, hindered the legacy of a lot of that stuff because there's a lot of... Sets are cheaper than vinyl though, right? They're they're super cheap, yeah. And and I think... Didn't it turn out like CDs ended up being cheaper than all of it? Eventually, totally. Yeah, Yeah, and it's just interesting to think back because at the time, in the early 90s, having a cassette label was not a weird thing. Like, people did it. It was cooler to have 
Like it seemed more established to have a label that put out records, but tapes were still at least a th- like they were dying versus being a niche. You know, like now people would run a tape label. It would be like a niche thing and be purposely a waste of time. I felt like the only tapes I had were, de- <laughs> I feel like bands still made demos on tapes, even after tapes were kind of totally past. Like I remember I, being, oh, by the Barrett Alive demo. Absolutely. I mean, I remember, uh, I, I'm sure I still have the Rodin demo that they were just passing around at shows. Like they'd go to other shows and give out these demos. And that was only nine months, maybe like a year before there was a Rodan CD, you know? So it's not, yeah. it, they, it's not like they're making demo tapes to then hopefully make a professional tape. They're basically like the demo still exists as a tape. And then the idea is that we graduate to vinyl or CD like that whole era was sort of like that. It was like, oh, you're not making tapes anymore, so you're on the up. It's really, I am literally never thought about this until just this moment. I'm like, holy shit, all demos used to be tapes, and then you sort of realize like they made something legitimate if it wasn't a cassette anymore. <laughs> Plus, I think Scott worked at Kinko, so it made it really easy oh, yeah. to make tapes because you can just. And if he didn't work at Kinko, somebody else that was really close to him that didn't give a shit about robbing Kinko's blind worked at Kinko's. But everybody worked, somebody worked at Kinko's in every town, right? Yeah, absolutely. Fact, Kinko's was 24 hours is why zines became popular because people just weren't watching. Absolutely. <laughs> I couldn't, the Kinko's business model before I knew anything about business blew my mind. Like I couldn't understand because I observed or participated in so much like sort of just blatant thievery of like free copies and all that thousands by the thousands you know on a weekly basis and i've always in my head and it was always late at night it's always like two in the morning three in the morning and i'd see it and i'd think in my head like is there any way that they're making money off legitimate stuff through the rest of the hours of this day that they can make all these stores stay open like i really thought in my head like how is this possible how do they really make so much money that they don't even notice or care like they it's not even occurring to them like oh we're like 600 reams of paper short you know a bunch of punk kids over by the paper cutter just yeah cutting and cutting and cutting and cutting and leaving all night and no one's paying for a thing it's kinko's is not still longer in business it's fedex FedEx now it's fedex store really i didn't know that fedex bought kinko's and do they is it now technically just called like fedex store fedex FedEx office fedex office that's what it is so it's like ups store and FedEx office. Okay. And FedEx just bought Kinko's to and, do and now, like, exactly that. And now it's kind of, I guess they caught on because now you have to go to the counter. Yeah. You can't do anything else. You have to go to the counter and go, can I do this, this, and this? Yeah. And there's all kinds of really, really difficult, it's really, really hard to pull off the same kind of. So I guess they did learn. Deception, yeah. They had to have seen at some <laughs> point being like, huh. I mean, I guess really it's not like punk rock is, oh, well, now I guess it would be maybe mainstream enough to make a difference. Did you learn all that, like going into Kinko's and doing that from these guys that were you totally. know, keeping you motivated? Yeah, 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 absolutely. Like, uh, Sean, well, yeah, people like, you know, people in like Guilt and Endpoint, like all these sort of hardcore bands, uh, and even like Rodan and, and that crew all did that. Everybody did that. I mean, it was the other thing about music is like it was starting to divide. Uh, in the 90s where, and maybe this happened for, for you as well, Jonah, like in Cleveland where there we were starting, in Louisville, we're starting to splinter off into like 
hardcore punk and art rock. And I think just prior to me starting to go to shows, those things were kind of all one and the same, you know, like in the late eighties, as far as like, so we're, it's only a few years difference, but it makes a big difference when you're a kid, but it's like in 88, 89, all that stuff. So I started going to shows in 90 or 91 and I would hear these stories like two years, three years prior where it's like, Oh, Endpoint would play with any, you know, blah, 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 like all these bands. And then I'd start seeing these active splits where it's like, that's a hardcore club, you know, like that's an art rock venue. Like those kinds of things where you're like, we're turned into two disparate scenes. And then I would also, there'd be like a weird thing where it's, there'd be hardcore kids who you could see were really pursuing the other side who were like, I want to be over there. Like I want in this weird social acceptance, like anthropology experiment kind of thing where it's like, you're all the same age and you're all making music and you all buy your instruments from the same place. And you probably rehearse in largely similar, everybody rehearses in somebody's house and you've, you've constructed this weird high school style social hierarchy where it's like, I now feel like this hardcore or punk rock that I'm making is not as cool or as intellectual as this thing that those guys are making, which we all made together two years prior or three years prior. And it just sort of, so then there was this great divide and it was around the time that the slant record came out, you know, where it was, and it, it wasn't for any reason of those guys at all. I think it was just the, it got so much press i guess and so much it became sort of this like weird bomb that went off like was that you you put the slant record no no not at all i mean that was way before my touch and go put out the slant record okay but that's what got me that record is what started the spiderline records what started steering me away from hardcore and it wasn't so in that sense that record means everything to me so, hope you dug that. Good news, podcast isn't over, even though <laughs> it sounds like you just got taken out of it. Uh, we had Jeremy come back on his own a few months after we recorded this with Jeff and uh, talk a little bit about the actual United Nations record, which comes out on July 15th, um, once we kind of had things more worked out. So we had Jeremy come back to talk about how he came involved with United Nations and then talk a little bit about the box set, which comes out on July 15th. So if you don't care about the band, you can stop listening now. Otherwise, this might be interesting to you. So I, my old off, the old temporary residence office was in Manhattan and Jeff used to come by all the time uh, and just visit, which he still does in the Brooklyn office. And he told me about United Nations then in like 2006, 2007, but had already committed to putting it out with Eyeball because Eyeball were like old friends of, of I don't know you, if they were you, but I know yeah, they, they, were. they put out. Are you on o- that record? You are, right? I'm on that record okay. and they put out my old band, The Love Kill. Oh, okay. And Jeff was involved with the label. Yeah, so, so yeah. I believe Jeff told you you were in the band in United Nations. He did. Yeah, you had no option. I would believe that. That sounds about right. Yeah. In general, for the whole United Nations thing, it's kind of like, yeah, that guy's. I remember you telling me he's like, I, yeah, I'm still not sure I'm in the band. <laughs> um, but he, so he, I really liked it, and I wanted to work with him, and it, because we were doing this Thursday Envy split around that time, and I really liked that United Nations 
the recordings that he had given me and he was like well we've it's kind of a sticky situation because we already committed to eyeball because he was part kind of right. you know mm-hmm. totally re- respect that and i'm into it but uh right around that same time thursday we're transitioning from island to epitaph yep is that correct that's correct and he wanted he was like okay well the second record like which i think is going to be a 10 inch that'll have songs you know have forked grooves in it so that the song you never know which song you're going to get when you put the needle down he's like i really want to do that would you want to do that and originally i think the idea was like six song 10 inch or something like that where it just was constantly forked right i was like that sounds awesome and he's like okay let's make a contract for that before we do for thursday does a contract with epitaph just in case like you know who knows what could happen with contracts with that stuff and he was like i I just don't want something to happen and then lo and behold we look back and realize like oh we incidentally gave <laughs> that for, is a dude who's been through the major label ringer. He, that's the thing, yeah. exactly. You like no one talks like that unless they've been through the major label ringer, unless they've been super screwed over in long form contracts for right. years, sort of religiously. Unfortunately, like but th- but most then of that. Didn't they get uh, devolution? Didn't they get that? Like, didn't they get their record back? Didn't they have a really good lawyer? I mean, it came out on it came out on Epitaph. Yeah, I yeah. think I think when we talked to Jeff, like they have like. He's, he, I don't know if it's so much more being screwed over. It was just an awareness of how it works. You know what I mean? No, no, no. I'm yeah. saying a previous history of being screwed over. Right. Yeah, I'm not saying epitaph did. No, 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 not no, at no, all. No, no, no. Yeah, I, I saying, yeah. I think it's just, it was, to Jonah's point, of like spoken like someone who truly is like, because there's nobody else really that we work with right. who would jump on that that quickly for something that they don't even have material for yet. Right. You know, where he was like, I want to sign contracts for something that we haven't even made yet so that by the time we sign contracts for Thursday stuff with whoever else, they can't then come back to us afterwards and be like, we also have first right of refusal for everything else that every member of the band does. Is that something that you can do that you can write right up or you have an attorney on a retainer? Well, no, we have like a few. I try and avoid, uh, no offense to lawyers that we work with, who are work? Who are listening? They're used to, this. to being offended. It's okay. <laughs> yeah, but I true. try and avoid They're it. Bottom feeding people. They know what they got themselves mm-hmm. into. Well, but and there are some great ones. There's some great ones, and I am really lucky. There's a there's a couple that I work. Well, this guy Brad Shenfeld is the best. Is the best. He's he's a really good dude. He's great. He's really helpful to us. He's really supportive and really sincere about it. And came to us as a fan of the label years before. He sort of like grew in power as a lawyer long after he had been a fan of the label and approached us you know and that's how the best ones we worked with are because we actually believe that their vested interest in us is not financial you know that it's like no we really want to we have to figure out a way for you to get this in your hands so you, you know? had this guy or whoever and set At, this thing up with jeff for united yeah, nations like six years ago like we have well, I, i've got to find it somewhere and what's funny about it is like the contract uh has it definitely has a catalog number attached to it and i think the catalog number is like 115 and the actual catalog number now that this record's coming out is 240 so it was over 100 releases ago 
which is over five years easily. It's you know six years ago because it was right when the first record came out that we did this con. I gotta find it somewhere. You should find it. Well, it's funny. Is it ten inches on our Wikipedia page? That's so weird. So this ten inch. This and what's funny too is like ultimately the record we ended up doing that would have been quote unquote the ten inch is a. So there's it. It's coming out in July. There's a CD version, and which is pretty standard. And then there's a vinyl version, which is two seven inches, a ten inch, and a cassette, all in, all inserted into this customized cardboard platform that then fits into this full color, uh, like die cut, <laughs> uh, cardboard wrap. So it's it that like tab and lock sort of thing. So it like l- folds in on itself. And closes, so it's like a box set, but it's it's a single record, like it's a single album. It's it's who designed that? Me and Jeff, and say who did the art? You guys? Yeah, yeah. Lord. Well, we had a couple artists also. Yeah, we had. So you you'll remember the names. Well, Steak Mountain. Right. I was going to ask. It sounds right up their alley. Yeah, yeah Steak Mountain did one of the seven inches. Steak Mountain did one of the seven inches. Victoria Burge, Berg or Burge? I, I'm, I apologize. I don't know how to pronounce her last name because I've only ever read it. But she did the constellations that are on the back of the ten inch. Okay. Uh, and then who did the serious business stuff? This guy who just calls himself Mister The, who is an Italian hobo nickel designer. I don't know if you know what hobo nickels are, I don't. but they're literally nickels that, and it got its name from being a common uh, hobo art, like which is a thing when people, like hobos will typically, and apologies to all the hobos listening to this podcast if I get this wrong, but uh, they'll trade artwork as that's the barter system. You know, it's basically like, oh, I made this music box out of things that I found. I'll trade you for this walking stick. You know, like they will trade each other. That's their commodity instead of money. And they ride the rails to wherever they need to go. And they ride the rails to wherever they need to go. And hobo nickels are artwork that's hand-engraved out of functioning nickels. So they change everything about the nickel into something else. And so I found this guy, because they had one of the seven inches in this box set is called Serious Business, and then the B-side is called Meanwhile on Main Street. And there's a, he, so he made a, a nickel that is this guy, sort of Phantom of the Opera style, wearing, it's a carnival guy with like a hat. You know, like the guys who like run the carnival with the big yeah. cloaks and all that stuff with like sort of half of a face it's like a monster face on one side like a mask and then this carnival hat and so that's the serious business one and then there's another nickel for meanwhile on main street that's just a homeless guy sitting on a street corner and they're they're gorgeous i mean they're and mind you like they are nickels actual nickels i insist you give me one of these box sets jonah i will i will give you one I, yeah i remember when you sent me that i was like I had no idea what to expect, and I was like, this is the coolest thing this I've ever insane. seen. This is insane. I love it. Why it's, the cassette? Because uh, they originally... Well, so the idea originally was... Jonah Blasphemer. Yeah, well, he... Uh, the, originally, the idea was that we were going to release a bunch of separate singles and whatnot, I think. I don't know. I, I mean, that we were going to do that and then collect them all. Oh. And then at, at some point, it sort of became more... I don't know if we have, I honestly don't think we had a conversation about it. I think at some point it was just like, you know what? Let's just keep making music. And then when we've collected enough music to make a record, 
address all of it and figure out what to do with it. And we all really still liked the idea of doing the separate releases, but we just sort of decided like, what if instead of an LP, like a standard CDLP, what if the LP quote unquote was a bunch of random vinyl and other ephemera. The cassette came from, they had made, uh, we made 50 of this cassette called Illegal UN that we sold on our last tour. Oh. Maybe not our last tour. Maybe last year. We had three songs, and we sold 50 of them, numbered them all, and they sold out, and then that was it. And they never leaked. And people were, like, at the end of the tour, were trying to, like, offer us, like, tons of money from them. We were like, that's it. We just made 50. And you know how they didn't leak? is because no one could play them. Well, yeah. That, that was, well, yeah, but also, like, the quality was... Not great because they were cassettes, I feel like. So that was kind of the point. Yeah. That's pretty funny. And so that is in there. That's basically the only physical artifact from, I think, our original idea of releasing all these things bit by bit and then collecting them. The cassette is just being repressed and put into this box set as a piece. <laughs> how do you but, decide how many to make of this whole thing? Like, like you know, for the... You're like, making like ten, 10 million? I think it's 10 million. I think 10 million. We just million. looked at... Wow. We want to be conservative. Well, yeah. I, I looked at it as how many records has Adele sold, right? Wow. And then I thought, this is not as accessible as Adele. Mm-hmm. But it's not far off. No, not at all. It's I mean, definitely it's more 19 than 21. Yeah it's, yeah, it's the Adele formula. It is more 19 than 21. <laughs> See, true Adele fan, fist bump that shit, dog. Represent. Um, it is more 19 than 21, and 19 is more of a 5 to 6 million seller. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, 21, obviously, that's going for the uh, 80 to 90-year-old So your, th- your, th- your theory was just take 19, double it. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Essentially. <laughs> I thought, this is going to be twice as successful yeah. as 19. <laughs> yeah. Marginally less successful than 21. I mean, you know, uh, you can't reach we, that bar. <laughs> it, it, it was, I think, just, I don't know. I don't have an answer for that, actually. I flew a little bit blind on the quantity of it. Jeff seemed pretty confident, as Jeff can be, about these sort of things, that a thousand sounds great. And I was like, okay. I mean, you know, there's a per unit cost issue that comes into play with that stuff where a thousand becomes kind of the first number that we can hit where it's like, all right, well, now we can at least not have to sell these for $80. You know, like it, if you press three or 400 of that thing and of what I was just describing, then you realize the per unit cost is absurd. You and, know, and, I mean, is this something that Not you that guys it's not gonna, still absurd. No, the whole thing is absurd. That's why it's great. That's art. Is that... Is this something that you guys are going to pack into the van and take on tour with you, or is this only going to be available on the website? I think that's going to be dictated by people buying it. Yeah, I mean, I, if it if it uh, like I wouldn't want be you standard guys to LPs not, too. Yeah, think, right? well, I don't know. I mean, that's the yes, maybe. <laughs> I think the idea is. <laughs> I think the idea is. I just formed my own record label. Yeah, I think the idea is if it sells, then maybe we would maybe we should make another one. Like a standard LP. If it doesn't sell, then obviously we shouldn't. I really don't know. I mean, it. Well, I think like that's part of the beauty of it too. You yeah. Know, like we don't. We don't know. Like, it's. You know, it's like an art project, and it's like, and you know, we're not like a full time touring band, so it's like the reaction has been great so far, but like we sort of never know. So I'm. I have no idea how it'll sell. I don't know if people will be into it, but like that's. How cool. many can you get? Oh wait. 
I don't know when we're releasing this. I was going to ask how many you can get in time for Skate and Surf. <laughs> when is Skate and Surf? Like two weeks. Skate and Surf is um, May 18th. Do you want to go? Sh- sure. I'll send you an email. Yeah. I'll send you the info. But you can ask that. I kind of want to go. We should release this. We release, so when you want to release this next week. Okay, perfect. So you can ask about Skate Oh, then great. Okay, we good. actually should probably. Okay. Um, Steven. Yes. So will this be ready for Skate and Surf? No. Nope. No. Damn it. <laughs> No, it but we will be, be we will be playing some new songs yeah. at Skate and Surf from okay. it. Oh, is that oh from the record? From the record, I thought yeah. you meant even newer than that. No, like, not newer exciting. than that, but some songs. That's some Shoal shit right there. Yeah, yeah, no. Um, uh, July fifteenth, I believe, is the release date. Okay, which kept getting pushed. We had this really great, grandiose idea of releasing it on tax day on April fifteenth, uh, which politically sounded really funny to me but it just became really obvious like it's oh there's a dick punk rock move that's when joe ramon died oh that's brutal it was wasn't there an issue with like the tr- delivery trucks there's been like uh, there were, I f- I f- sure i kept hearing like like yeah i think it got incredible there's a lot yeah there's been because this thing is what it is there have been unbelievable amounts of not even unbelievable i've seen it before it's just every time i do a box set something I always think to myself, I've now done four, or I've now done five of these, or I've now done six of these. Like, this is going to run smoother, and it never does. It never does. You've done some really beautiful box sets. I appreciate that. They never, they still take forever. (laughs) They, I mean, I don't get, in that sense, I'm not getting any more efficient at it. (laughs) Like, it's just, they still take forever. I think that, um, I would also want to add that, like, we don't want to give everything away about it, about it, but I do feel like there are some really interesting, like, surprises that people will discover in the box set. Yeah, like, whether it's, whether it's visual or, like, sonically, or, like, I think there's... I think I think the people who really, like, get into it will... You know what I mean? That's right? the thing, yeah, because it, it's been this, you know, it's, like, me and, and Jonah and Jeff and Lucas... Uh, have emailed so much about this thing back and forth the last year or so. And it's cool because they're, what Jonah was saying, there's loads of stuff that we haven't even mentioned about it. I mean, that's boilerplate, the stuff that we've talked about. But it's cool because because we were designing it in parts, like in little pieces, it created all of these miniature art events for us where it's like, okay, serious business seven inch what are we going to do it's like i don't know and then you just you tackle that as a release like as it's as if it was its own thing and then you'd finish that and you realize that that doesn't have to play into the other records you're just like okay as a unit it's going to be a part that goes into this larger thing but that artwork can be completely independent of everything else in here because it's meant to be a collection which is really nice when you're doing it because you can switch gears completely aesthetically to another thing where you're like, okay, well, now this other thing is going to be like this and it's going to be all gray. And that's fine because it's not supposed to look like the 7-inch. You know, like the 10-inch and the 7-inch can look like they happen at completely different times by completely different artists. You know, those kinds of things are really liberating to do because stuff like the slant box set, when we were working on that, they're... Every part of that was really, really, really attached to the other parts. So it's like whenever you were working on one thing, all the way down to like everything had to line up when 
when I would take the box, when you remove the part, the gatefolds and everything out of the box, they have to line up with each other so that when you see that you fan them out, when you see it, you know, all of the, the photos on all of them are perfectly lined up against each other when you fan it out. Those kinds of things where I would have to constantly revisit each other one when I was working on one to make sure that they all work. And this was really liberating in that way because it's like, I don't, I don't have to give a shit about so what the other ones look like. If you're making your band's website cool, you're not. Think about how you're going to make your vinyl releases. Fans out there with bands. Yeah. There's a lot that goes into it. All right. That was Jeremy Devine. Is it? Are we over? Is it done? I think it's finally. Wait. It, it, let me look. There's I think nobody here. There's no one here. It's just me and Brad. So <laughs> that was Jeremy once again. Uh, Talking about Louisville, temporary residence, and United Nations the next four years, which I think uh, is getting announced today in multiple channels. And we've been working on it for a really long time, so it's really exciting for us, and thank you for indulging us. Uh, as a bonus, um, I think we're going to play a snippet of one of the songs from the record right? that no one has heard before. I probably should have mentioned this at the beginning, <laughs> but you know what? If if you really care about UN, you're probably still listening, and if you don't, you probably don't want to hear it anyways. Uh, so yeah, this is a clip from the song Serious Business, which will be on the next four years. It comes out July 15th on Temporary Residence. And um, yeah, visit us online, goingofftrack.com, Facebook Going Off Track, follow us on Twitter, all that stuff. Um, and yeah, this is, I guess, the first time anyone's hearing this. So hope you enjoy this snippet and, uh, you'll be able to hear the song in full as well as the rest of the album very soon. So thanks for listening and prepare to have your eardrums completely blown out. 